This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. we got a good one for you this week. We have episode 247, entitled The Messiah in Psalm 22. We've been working through the Old Testament, through the Hebrew Bible, in order to ascertain the Messianic prophecies, at least the passages that early Jews and Christians would draw upon in order to shape and form their understanding of what the Messiah would look like, about what he's going to do, about his roles, and of course about his relationship with the God of Israel. And we've been working through the Psalms in the midst of our study of those passages within the Old Testament. Today we come to Psalm 22. Here are some of the questions I would like to explore in regard to Psalm 22 in this week's episode. First, what is the crisis taking place in Psalm 22, and how does it relate to the death of Jesus? Second, in what ways are the speaker and Israel's God differentiated in Psalm 22? Third, how did Jesus reinterpret Psalm 22 and apply it to himself according to the Gospel writers? And lastly, how does the New Testament's use of Psalm 22 contribute to our understanding of Jesus' humanity? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is a close look at Psalm 22. This is a decently lengthy psalm, so I think it's good to read through it and to offer some interesting comments as we move along the way. We can't give an extensive commentary on every single verse, but it'll be interesting to point out the aspects of the crisis involving the psalmist, and of course pointing out how the psalmist relates to Israel's God. So let's look at Psalm 22. A Psalm of David, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are my words of my groaning. This is the first verse. The psalmist here, of course, we're not exactly sure if it's David or if it's something that David might say, according to the psalmist, but clearly this writer views God as his God. He mentions it twice for the sake of emphasis, but he is at a point of suffering. He is groaning. He feels forsaken, and his deliverance is quite far from his calling that comes forth from his groaning. Verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. We have the reaffirmation here in verse 2 that God is the God of this psalmist. Clearly this psalmist does not think that he is God. He has a God above him. In the first two verses, he addresses Yahweh as my God three times. Verse 3, Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. 
in you our fathers trusted. They trusted in you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. So here the psalmist in verses 3, 4, and 5 is reminding God of the covenant relationship that he had with Israel's forebears, with the patriarchs. And in doing so, the psalmist addresses God with a variety of singular pronouns. Second person plural. You are holy. In you, our fathers trusted. To you, they cried out. Clearly, the God of this psalmist is a single person. In verse 6, he begins to contrast himself with Israel's patriarchs. He says, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despise by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with their lips. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. So here we can see that the author views himself in quite a lowly circumstance. Poetically, he mentions that he is not a man. He is lower than a man. He is just a mere worm. He is despised. He is the reproach of human beings. And people mock him. They wag their heads. They sneer at him. They separate their lips. And they say, look, if you just commit yourself to God, God's going to deliver you. Let him rescue you. Verse 9. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. So in verses 9 through 10, the author indicates that he has been in relationship with Israel's God from his inception, from his own birth. Again, God is described as the God of the psalmist. And you can see that God is having this relationship with him from this period of birth. This will be very interesting because as this is applied to Jesus, the indication is that the relationship of God being the God of Jesus began at Jesus' birth, not at some sort of point in pre-existence prior to that birth. Let's move on. Verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. So in verses 11, 12, and 13, the enemies of the psalmist are likened unto animals. Of course, he has likened himself unto a worm. His enemies are likened unto lions and bulls. This is the poetry that we have come to expect within these psalms. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Verses 14 and 15 indicate that the psalmist feels that he is expiring. He is running out of energy. He doesn't have the strength to go on. And in fact, he indicates that God has allowed him to be laid in the dust of death. He is practically sitting in the grave. He is that close 
to dying, and this, of course, is part of his call for deliverance and rescue. Verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So here the enemies are described as dogs, as a band of evildoers, and they have persecuted the psalmist to the strongest extent of the language available to him, piercing him, staring at him, and pretty much assuming that he's going to die, so they're dividing his clothing, casting lots for his garments. Verse 19, But you, O Yahweh, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. So the psalmist is not given up hope. He believes that Yahweh is able to rescue him from dying, from these dire circumstances, from the crisis in which he finds himself. The rescuing, again, describes the opponent's with animal language, as a dog, as a lion, as wild oxen. And the psalmist promises that if he receives his deliverance, his redemption, his salvation, that he will tell of it among the assembly. He's going to declare it among the other children of Israel, among all the descendants of Jacob. Verse 24, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. And when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear you. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise Yahweh. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. He'll be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. So there's the promise that the deliverance of this afflicted person will result in this person's celebration of Yahweh, the worship of Yahweh, and this worship and acknowledgement of Yahweh as the deliverer of the afflicted is going to spread. It's going to spread beyond the nation of Israel. In fact, it's going to go to all of the nations, all of the Gentiles. And it reminds Yahweh that the kingdom belongs to him. He rules over the nations. And the nations are going to come and celebrate by eating. They will be worshiping. In fact, 
there's going to be worship from those who have actually died. Those who go down to the dust will bow down before Yahweh. There's a sense to where they too are going to be vindicated from their own death, probably through the sense of resurrection. And even the children are going to worship God, the posterity, the coming generation. Those who are going to be born, they're going to declare God's righteousness, which is his saving covenant justice. So that's Psalm 22. And we can already start to see how Jesus can be meditating on this particular passage while he is on the cross, because this passage indicates that God is able to rescue the afflicted when the afflicted is wrongfully being persecuted with the result of this worldwide praise that is attributed to God that is based upon the deliverance of the afflicted person. And so Jesus naturally is going to see himself and his rejection, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection in light of the psalmist. Now, it's very clear that in Psalm 22, the writer did not actually die of this particular circumstance. The sense is that he was rescued. God did deliver him. God rescued him from the crisis at hand. And that, of course, resulted in the celebration that took place. And, of course, the psalms or the hymn book of ancient Israel, they would look at a passage like this and say, yes, God does deliver the afflicted and the needy. But when Jesus is thinking about this passage in regard to himself, he is not looking for the rescue from the cross, as if God is going to remove Jesus from the cross and save his life. The rescue comes on the other end. The rescue comes after Jesus has died and God breathes new life into Jesus, raises from the dead, and of course vindicates him from the power of death. Let's move on to our second point, the use of Psalm 22 in the synoptics. So the opening verse of Psalm 22, in which the psalmist cries out and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is something that Matthew and Mark indicate that Jesus himself said on the cross. They're the last words of Jesus on the cross. So in Matthew's version, in Matthew 27, verse 46, it says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now here, the Hebrew of Psalm 22 has been carried over into Matthew, and it's spoken up at this particular point, and of course the narrator translates and explains what it means for the reader. Many readers could not understand Hebrew within the first century. More Jews were speaking Aramaic at that point. Very few people were speaking or could understand Hebrew at that point. But Matthew is wanting to give an explicit citation. And oftentimes these gospel writers, when they remember that Jesus had spoken a very influential saying, they will record it in the original language. And then, of course, give a translation of it. 
Jesus, of course, indicates that he is the afflicted and persecuted person and that God is his God. Jesus has a God, meaning that he himself is not the true God. The true God is Yahweh. The true God is the Father. And Jesus is the Son. Jesus has a God, and he reinforces it with this citation. That's what Matthew would have his readers understand about the difference between God and Jesus. Now, Mark's version has something that's very similar with a very subtle difference. In Mark 15, verse 34, he notes that it's at the ninth hour. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So for those that don't know Hebrew, you'll notice that Mark uses Eloi and Matthew uses Eli. Eloi is the Aramaic for the God of me, and Eli is Hebrew for the God of me. Matthew has drawn upon the actual Hebrew of Psalm 22, to where Mark is probably quoting the more accurate saying of Jesus, who was speaking Aramaic at that particular time. So both authors cite Psalm 22. They indicate that Jesus has a God and that Jesus is positioning himself in light of the afflicted psalmist from Psalm 22. And of course, they translate it for their original readers. For Matthew and Mark, Jesus has a God, and that is the God that is going to rescue him from the cross. Another reference we can see is in Luke chapter 23, verse 35 where it says the people stood by looking on and the rulers were sneering at Jesus saying, he saved others, let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. That's Luke 23, verse 35. This is alluding to the sneering of the evildoers in Psalm 22 in regard to the psalmist. The same thing is actually taking place at the cross. And in Matthew 27:39, we have some similar words. Those who were passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. And again, this is drawing upon the image of Psalm 22, even though Psalm 22 was not dealing with the cross. But the New Testament writers saw this application being reaffirmed in the crucifixion and death of Jesus. Let's move to our third point, which is the use of Psalm 22 in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John will utilize Psalm 22 in its citations in a slightly different manner than that which we observed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here's a good example. In John 19, verse 24, it says, So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John 19, verse 24. So John is drawing on Psalm 22, specifically Psalm 22, verse 18, and he uses a very specific citation method here, a fulfillment of scripture indicator within the narrative in order to point out to the readers that he is explicitly drawing 
from Psalm 22. So, of course, the Gospel of John indicates that Jesus is this suffering and persecuted person, as we see in Psalm 22. Another reference comes a few verses later in John 19:28, which says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. That's John 19, verse 28. So in order to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And many scholars think that this is a reference to Psalm 22, verse 15, where the psalmist says, And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. It's not an explicit reference to the phrase, I am thirsty, but it's an indicator that the psalmist was thirsty. And since John has already alluded to, in a very specific way, Psalm 22, a few verses earlier, this is very likely what is taking place here. So the Gospel of John will have some, in order to fulfill scripture, sort of phrases that draw upon Psalm 22 to indicate the death of Jesus in light of the depiction of the suffering Israelite in Psalm 22. Let's move to our fourth and final point, the use of Psalm 22 in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 has a very interesting quotation in regard to Psalm 22, but the leading up to it actually has a little bit of ambiguity. Here's how it works. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it's a very interesting point. Notice this. It says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, and here's the quote from Psalm 22, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. So we have the clear explicit reference in verse 12 about Jesus proclaiming the name of God to Jesus' brethren, to his brothers and sisters. This, of course, indicates that Jesus has brothers and sisters. He is a member of the human race. He is a man. He is a human being. Thereby, he has brothers. This, of course, indicates that he is a genuine human being. And, of course, it's verse 11 that says that he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And this leads to the quotation of Jesus proclaiming God's name to the brethren. But the interesting point is at the beginning of verse 11, where it says both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. Now it just so happens that the grammatical form of this adjective one is ambiguous. It could be masculine or it could be neuter. If it's masculine, then they're all from one father. That's how the NASB translates it. Meaning Jesus is derived from one father in the very same way that human beings are derived from the one father, meaning that they all share this common humanity. If, however, the word one is neuter, then they all derive from the common human stock. They're all from one humanity. Either way, Jesus is a human being just as much as his brethren, as his brothers and sisters. But it's interesting to consider 
the ways in which the humanity is fulfilled in these different ways that the number one could be understood in this passage. And it's grammatically ambiguous. It could go either way. And you'll notice that the critical commentaries will discuss this and they'll offer the reasons why it could go one way or the other. So there you have it. Psalm 22 was highly influential on early Christians. It seems that Jesus himself attributed the psalm to himself and that his words were remembered by his disciples. They recited the very words that he said in Aramaic. Matthew puts that into Hebrew. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these gospel evangelists, applied Psalm 22 to the death of Jesus, as well as the writer of the book of Hebrews. And this results in a depiction of Jesus as the suffering human one who needed redemption from Yahweh. And Yahweh, of course, was the God of Jesus, to whom Jesus cried out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next week as we continue to look at the Messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. We will look at Psalm 40 and the difficult passage that this brings about in reference to the body that was prepared for Jesus. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. If you'd like to offer a donation, you can check us out in the episode's description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.